Hi everybody, welcome to the BAFTA Guru Live panel on telling stories in games. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, I write about games for The Guardian and I'm on The Gadget Show on Channel 5 at 7pm on a Friday if anyone wants to watch that. Um, so prominent naysayers aside, the industry seems well on its way to accepting that games can tell stories and that it should hire specialists to do so. And thanks to the work of people like Rihanna with all the talks that she gives, um, that they should hire writers early in the process. Um, so we've kind of got to that point, I think, and I want to kind of move on to what's next. What does the games industry need to know next? And I want to talk about the kind of nitty gritty of writing in games. And I've got four experts to help me do that. I'm going to get them to introduce themselves one by one. So first. Um, I'm Rihanna Pratchett. Uh, I've been in the games industry since 98. Um, initially as a journalist and then moving into development. So I've been developing uh, stories for about 16 years now. Um, also write in, in comics and film and TV. Um, some of my games include Tomb Raider, Rise of the Tomb Raider, The Overlord Games, Mirror's Edge, Heavenly Sword, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay, next. Uh, my name is Dan Abnett. I'm a novelist and comic book writer, mm -hmm. predominantly. I've done, done that for quite a long time. I've written, <laughs> written a ridiculous number of uh, novels, particularly Shooty Death, Kill in Space for Warhammer. <laughs> And a lot of comics, possibly most notably uh, Marvel DC, 2000 AD, but the Guardians of the Galaxy, which is what they derive the movies from. Mm -hmm. So that's my fault, sorry. Uh, but in the last 10 years or so, uh, I have also started to write games, either writing dialogue or character, or actually writing storylines for games. Um, and uh, yes, that's it. What, so, ga what games have you worked on? Uh, I, I've written, I created the Orc characters and wrote dialogue for the Orcs in both Shadow of Mordor games. I've written a lot of chat chatter for other things and inevitably get asked to do things like the you know, Guardian spin-off mm. mobile platform game and things like that. But Alien Isolation would probably be the, the key one. Uh, okay, and next. Uh, my name's Joseph Humphrey. I'm co-founder of Inkle, which is a narrative game studio, an indie studio based in Cambridge. Um, I got into the game industry a few, uh, in 2005 when I joined um, Rare, and I've been a programmer since then, um, except ever since founding my own company, I get the opportunity to be a kind of a jack of all trades, um, hopefully a master of some. <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah, I'm not a writer myself, but um, I kind of co-design um, basically all our games. Um, Two of our best-known games are the Sorcery series and 80 Days. Uh, and finally. Uh, uh, I'm William Pugh. I'm a human being. <laughs> I was born in, in, <laughs> in a year. And uh, I got into the games industry with, my, uh, with uh, uh, the IGF winning the Stanley Parable, which I co-created. Uh, I then went on to found the company Crows, 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 where we make exclusively family-friendly <laughs> and, and just, just generally all-around wholesome products. <laughs> all right, so to, to kind of start off, we're going we're gonna to go for the basics. Um, so thinking about this year's BAFTA Awards, the narrative category, the award went to Inside. Disclaimer, Rihanna and I were both on that panel <laughs> who decided that. Um, but one of the, when I wrote about the awards, on The Guardian, one of the commenters said, how could Inside win an award for narrative when it doesn't have any words in it? And obviously you talked about Alien Isolation not having any words in it as well. And for the sake of people like that, who might not understand what a narrative is, I wondered if we could try defining it. I also wondered, Dan, if you think it's the same kind of definition across games and other mediums like comics. 
So maybe you want to go first. What do you think a narrative is? Oh, great. Is? Um, uh, well, uh, 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 no words. There. <laughs> <laughs> narrative. Thank you. What a good, what a good story. Yeah. <laughs> I was proud of that one. Uh, certainly, in, in relation to comics and indeed film, uh, narrative can be communicated without words a great deal. I mean, there were, there were no words in that trailer we saw there. There are words in Alien Isolation. Most of them are screams. <laughs> um, but there, there is obviously narrative communicated, but narrative communicated in all sorts of different ways through visual clues or through, through all sorts of different things, or just by, by the attitudes of the, of, the, of the things that you're seeing. Uh, and that borrows heavily, obviously, from film and also from comics. The comics very effectively can communicate story without the need for even the slightest balloon or whatever. Um, so I, I think... Uh, uh, Narrative is something that, that, in my experience, coming comparatively late in my career to, to games, I was often astonished at how late in the process I was being brought in as a writer, which is something we've obviously spoken about a great deal. Uh, and also that the idea that story was uh, a sort of optional extra, mm. like leather seats that you could tick later on in your game and say, well, yeah, we'll have those. We'll have a story. Should we have a story? And then it could be bolted on somehow. Mm. And, uh, and I also have, have encouraged the people I've worked with uh, strangely, none of whom have ever called me again. But they encourage the people I've worked with to to get me back next time they're doing a game at the beginning, mm. rather than a year or two years into the process, so that the story can be can be integral to the flow of it. Whether it's a story communicated verbally, uh, or whether it's just a story that, that sort of a, a skeleton that holds the whole thing together. Mm. Um, so I, I it certainly wordlessness is is not a a, a barrier mm. to. To communication, but I think having having the having the story embedded early on is a is a really key thing. Okay, so Rihanna, following on from that, obviously you've been doing this for a long time, and you have talked a lot about bringing writers on early in the process and stuff. And following on from what Dan said, are there then games that just don't have stories? Do all games have narrative? Um, I think most have some kind of narrative, mm. even if it's you know very very basic or, or just a kind of a wrapper around the gameplay usually there's a little bit of context for the gameplay and why you're doing what you're doing even if it's like rescuing pandas and panda pop or something or, or the little animations of plants in plants versus zombies that gives them sort of so much personality um th there's usually something there it's rare to get uh, a game that has no, no kind of narrative to it. But I, you know, I think we've definitely uh, there, there's a, a very broad range of, of kind of what narrative can mean. And also, it, um, Inside was not the only game in the BAFTA nominations that had no narrative. Mm. There was Virginia as well. So it's quite interesting. We got two in the same year, and it seems to be a, a sort of a popular thing to experiment mm. with at the moment. Um, yeah, but I, I think these days most have some kind. They don't. They don't always need a writer to construct it, um, but there's usually something there. Okay, and you two both make narrative games. Is that like, can, do you feel like you can separate the narrative part from the game part, or are they very much joined? I think I sort of see like all games on a spectrum between, well, I like to call it implicit narrative and explicit narrative, because I think a lot of games, as you say, do have narrative in them, even if it's just through the actions of what the player does, it creates this implicit narrative. Um, I think the, maybe the point of you know, dividing the line might be whether it has words in it at all. I don't know. Um, but frankly, I don't feel like it really matters very much. I think sometimes we have an obsession over defining what terms mean. It's the same as the debate over, you know, is a game art or not? And then people debate it a lot, but I think it just boiled down to people having fundamental 
differences of opinion over what the word art or what the word story means. Mm. And frankly, who cares? It's just, you know, it's, it's a work. Let's debate its kind of merits and critique it and talk about how it plays or how the story unfolds. But um, I'm actually slightly less interested in defining what the term means, because I feel like there's, there's more interesting things to talk Not that your question's no, not interesting. No, no, it's good. <laughs> I have a, I have a philosophy degree, <laughs> so like, asking about the definition of words pretty much all I did right. for three years. William, what do you think? Uh, I, well, I think my games are art. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think I need to defend. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I broadly agree with all of you. I think um, the process for me is for, for designing and creating games is working at its best when design and story go hand in hand. Mm. And that uh, if, so, so on Stanley Parable, the kind of design, uh, I was primarily design on that and Davey was primarily writing. And the best parts of the game emerged from when we were working as closely together mm. as possible. And uh, the design was informing the story, and the story was informing the design. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, let's talk about people working together to make the story. Then, um, Joe, you said you see different kinds of writing roles emerging now. So we've got past the point where we're like, should we get a writer? And now we have different <laughs> kinds of writers. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So it's just something I started to notice when um, working on Eighty Days, where we had two writers on board. We had Meg Giants, who is uh, the lead uh, writer on that project, and we had. John Ingold, who's my co-founder, so is also kind of a prominent, uh, he does the, the kind of any internal writing, and he's kind of the writing expert at the studio. Um, and so they both worked collaboratively on the project. Um, but what I started to notice is that they both had slightly different interests in the, in the types of things that they were interested in. For example, Meg was a kind of, is a voracious reader, and she does huge amounts of research, and re she really loves learning about um, well, in the case of 80 Days, all of the cultures around the world and what she could draw inspiration from there. Um, John's slightly less interested in the research aspect, but he's a great creative writer, um, and he's also extremely good technically. Mm. Um, and so, you know, as you start to mix writing and design together and, and the uh, technical aspects of games, he's really good at bringing those things together and, and kind of being able to look at the big picture of the structure of the story. And when it's um, really interactive, that's really quite a technical thing. So they really complemented each other really well. And what I kind of noticed is that it kind of matched a little bit of what you see in other roles in the game industry, that you have um, you know, a spectrum um, from artists, from kind of, say, uh, uh, concept artists up to technical artists. And they're both artists and they're both technical, but they also have kind of different complementary skills. And I think it would be great if we started to identify that in writers as well, that mm. Meg was more of a, almost like a, a world-building um, concept writer, almost. And John was more of a technical writer. Mm. OK. Have any of the rest of you noticed any kind of different writing roles? Um, I think so. I mean, when I first started out, um, it was usually one writer and that was you, and you were lucky if there was anyone else in the team who cared <laughs> about narrative. And if there was, you wanted to kind of mentally hug them every day. <laughs> um, and, you know, games like The Overlord, franchise I wrote every bit of writing there was, you know, from all the, the kind of cutscenes to barks to weapon text to player titles, um, everything. And partly that's because 
I, I was the, the only writer there, but also they, it was a, a Dutch studio, so mm. that oh, English okay. was their second language. So that, that was kind of helpful, and there was a lot less interference. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think that, that probably helped. And it was a very, the overall games were very sort of collaborative with the designers. Um, but with something like Tomb Raider, on the first game, there was just uh, two writers, uh, myself and John, John Stafford, who is the, the senior narrative designer. And for, for a long time, I was there on my own, pleading with the creative director to get a narrative designer, because we needed that support. And we needed someone that had one foot in the camp of design and one foot in the camp of narrative. And John did a lot of the, the secondary narrative, so um, diaries and journals. And I, I did a lot of the sort of cinematics, plus a lot of Lara journals mm. and um, things that sort of fold, folded into Lara. And then with, uh, with Rise, we sort of expanded out to, to four of us. So two in-house people, both one, one narrative director, one narrative designer, and then two writers externally. And um, I was sort of working a lot on the cinematics and, and Lara's stuff and Lara's diaries and Lara's father's diaries. Um, and it, it sort of allows external writers, you know, you don't have to get involved in the politics of work. You have kind of probably a more conducive writing environment than most offices are. <laughs> and At home in yeah, your pyjamas. And you don't... You don't get to fight which could be good and bad mm. um, so you, you kind of don't get the stress and you can sort of work you can focus on the, the creative aspect more and the, the in-house guys are about making sure the narrative and, and the gameplay and the level of design are sort of all, all kind of marrying up so we work very well together as a team but mm. we all sort of took on different parts like the, the narrative designer did secondary narrative I, I did more cinematics John sort of came also working on cinematics and then Philip was sort of doing polishing on on everything so mm, okay then sorry no you go no but if you look at things like Bioware they've got huge teams of, of writers now that take each takes a character class I've come in to do very specific writing roles on a project on Bioshock Infinite I came in just to do barks mm. I've had other writers come into my projects just to do barks which are for anyone that doesn't know, it's the short lines of AI dialogue or companion dialogue. What the enemies yeah, say before you yeah. shoot them. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, it's kind of really nice to see because you're getting a little bit more of a writing room mm. kind of vibe and you've got other people to bounce off and you don't feel so sad and alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what was that like for you, Dan, coming into a game from the outside? Well, I was going to say that the, 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 the sad and alone part was the real reason that I started working in took up games because it was a nice opportunity not to do what I normally do. We just sit on my own in a room writing. Um, games so, to make you less alone. Yes, <laughs> games to make you less alone. I, 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 um, I mean, I started out a long time ago in comics editorial, so I was used to working in an office environment, and then had been freelance for such a long time that the opportunity to work with a games company, even if it was m a matter of visiting them once a week or something for a day, to work in an office environment with a team was a refreshing change of pace mm. to, to writing something all on your own. Um, and and so from almost everything that I've done, I've been the external writer who visits. In some cases, I've worked on games that I've never set foot in the, the building because it's the other side of the planet. Mm. Um, and, I've, I, I, I've, I, and because I came in with... I completely apologise for the fact that I'm, I'm not, I, I am not a gamer. I'm just a writer. And That's therefore okay. I, I was hired at the, to begin with about 10 years ago when I first started getting game jobs on the basis that I knew how to write and knew absolutely nothing about games. And often that, that was a very, very useful thing because I would be the idiot in the corner who would sit up and ask the really blindingly obvious question about mm. why. And most of the time, people were able to laugh at me and tell me why, which is great. But every now and then, I'd ask a question and they went, 
And the answer was because that's how we do it in games. And that actually has proven to be very useful on occasion. Yeah. My sheer ignorance somehow turned into a plus, which was, which was great. Um, but but so, so I have no technical basis as a writer in games, but the, and therefore have undertaken different types from, from writing within games, uh, from world building to chatter, to, to dialogue, to, to overall storyline, uh, to cinematics, to... All. So it, depending on what they wanted me to do, I've, I've sometimes either done all of that for a game or I've worked with a team of writers who are usually in-house on a game. There were two other writers on, on Alien Isolation who were in-house that I worked with very closely. Mm. Uh, and sometimes that is that very odd phenomenon of, of sort of doing a bit of a game in intense detail but not really understanding the rest of the game. So, mm. f for example, on both Shadow of Mordor games, uh, I happen to know one of the, the, the guys there who, 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 got, who, who contacted me originally because he loved what I did with, with Warhammer and stuff like that. And he said, he explained how the Shadow of Mordor games would work in terms of the, using the, the, the Nemesis system to, to, to have the enemies sort of remember you so that it kind of built your own individual narrative in there where, where, where people would remember you, villains would remember you what you did last mm. time. A very critically acclaimed system. Like yeah, that. and I, I borrowed, I believe, from the Batman games because it was, it was originally from Batman's rogues gallery so the Riddler would remember what you did last time, Batman, oh, okay. and they went, okay, so well, we need to have a distinctive character. So I, think, I can't remember how it was in the first, it was possibly 40 or 50 on the first game and about 90 on the second game. They said, can you go away and invent... 50 or 90 orcs <laughs> with distinct personalities uh, and traits, mm. and then and then we're a little bi biog for each one of those, and then and then we will then give you the spreadsheets to fill out with the various iterations of if the, if the following happens, the orc will say this. Ah. Um, can you know a bit of sample monologuing if you overhear them when they're in the loo or whatever it is, <laughs> and and it was it was it was the equivalent of writing a novel in terms of word count to write all this dialogue for those mm. characters, and and I have to say writing 60 character distinct orcs is not as easy as it sounds. It doesn't sound easy. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was enormous fun, but but although I had a, a broad overview of what the game was, I didn't specifically have anything to do with the story mm. because all I was providing was the was the reaction of those characters to particular things that would happen in the story rather than the overall meta story of it going on. And it was and it was oddly it was very very enjoyable and I, I and I, I but but I felt oddly distanced from it was like writing all the dialogue for characters in a novel, but you don't know what the novel is, <laughs> and having no idea what the novel is. Sure. And also, it was very, very intensive, because, because I felt that they wanted them all to speak, in both games, they wanted to speak like Ray Winston or, or, or um, uh, Bob Hoskins in a, in a British gangster movie. And I found the only effective way I could get the dialogue done with some degree of speed was to say it out loud to myself as oh. I sat at my computer yeah. at home <laughs> so that I had the right intonations. <laughs> it's going to be an eruption and whatever. And uh, that's great, but you do that for three days solid and you can't stop. No. <laughs> Which entertained my family enormously at the end of the day when they come in. Dinner time, all right then. And I, and I couldn't, just couldn't not do it after that. They had an orc in the house. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so on the subject of working with other people then, you both have had writers work for you. William, obviously you write for yourself, but you also work with other writers. What's that like, managing writers? Um, I guess I haven't personally been involved with the actual management of the writers, but I guess it depends on whether you treat them as a kind of a collaborator or sort of uh, a contractor who's <laughs> a junior, a subordinate, <laughs> right, exactly. But it's the same either way. What we find is, you know, we give, we give them, um, uh, and we definitely bring on writers very early in the process, by the way, so they, they're generally involved right from the word go in deciding exactly um, what the flow of the overall arc of the story is, but we give them kind of scenes to, to flesh out, and then 
Um, predominantly, John will come in and um, do an editing pass on them. He, his main role is, is an, as, as an editor, um, whether they're kind of quite a junior writer or, or just, you know, a collaborator. Um. Okay. How about you, William? What's it like for you? Uh, it, there's as many different ways as there are different writers. Uh, my career so far has kind of been defined by three main collaborations. The first one with Davey for Stanley Parable, which was very much, he'd provide a script, I'd then do a note pass and, and throw some ideas in there, and then that would get just worked and massaged along with the design, and that was like a continuous process. Mm. So at the end of that, everything kind of felt like it had both of our fingerprints on it. Mm. Uh, Dr. Langaskov, which was a super short game that I, that, that I, I worked with Jack DeKeat on, he wrote all of the dialogue and then, and then that, was, that was a particularly kind of muddy process where the story blended into the design and overall structure. Mm. And I think, I think in the games industry broadly, there's a very, there's not really a set, no one's really decided whether structure is in, in like a writer's uh, camp or whether it's in the designer's camp. Mm -hmm. And like, I think the more you go to AAA, and the more like games are designed in terms of, okay, so the previous one was like this and it had these mechanics in and we want to add these new mechanics in and, and how do we layer that and bring and introduce those? Like I think the structure is very much in the designer's camp, but the more, the, the smaller the team gets, the more those roles overlap. And then, um, then working with Justin Roiland on, um, on accounting was again, a very different process where we'd just get a whiteboard and we'd write down a few dozen different short sentence long concepts for segments or moments in the game. Mm. And, then, and then he'd provide a, he, he, he in about an hour would provide a, a, a rough script for five or six of those. We'd then go into the recording booth straight away and we'd record um, and then we'd shove that in the game as quickly as possible and then we'd iterate on that. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's all it's, different. So it depends on who you're working with. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to talk about um, the different, like like you mentioned, William, the way different kinds of games might require different kinds of writers. So like you know, AAA is going to differ from a small indie game, and obviously this is relevant to you, Rihanna, because you've worked on all sorts of things from AAA to mobile. Um, do you need um, different kinds of writers? for those different kinds of things. Did you have to have a very different skill set for AAA and mobile, or do you feel like there was an overlap? There is definitely an overlap. Um, I don't necessarily think you need different kinds of writers, but you can use writers for different roles. Mm. Um, so as I said, I've, I've gone in and helped friends that have been working on the main narrative to, to kind of do support stuff, and um, that, that's usually quite, quite fun to do, and it's, it's good for... Um, honing your skills, like right, you know, if, you, if you've just gone into write barks, that can sometimes be be quite kind of fun to hone those particular skills. Um, I think it, actually being a gamer myself has um, helped a lot because I play a whole variety of games. I'm very used to the looking at it from a gamer's perspective, um, and you know, the you do uh, your. Um, I guess I guess your 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 canvas for telling the story becomes different. So, uh, on 
kind of DS games I've worked on, you, you have to start, you become very aware of the length of words, for mm. example, and you have to factor in the, the fact that German words are longer or, or Japanese text takes up more memory and, and things like that. And then um, when you're working on the AAA, there's, there's uh, fewer restrictions, but um, you're, you're always trying to do the, the same kind of thing. Uh, it was the same uh, actually changing to comics as well, because mm. that learning to write for comics was um, you know, quite a different process as well. And probably there was more difference between writing for games and moving into comics than there was in writing for games and moving into movies and TV. Um, but yeah, I think um, writers are now becoming not so much of a luxury, so I guess we're becoming a little bit more diversified. Um, but you know, most game writers should be able to do, turn their hand to everything. Okay. And because I worked my way up doing little stuff to start with, so I started doing kind of level dialogue or story editing, I sort of learned about every little part of it. So when I was doing, got to doing triple I stuff, I knew about all the different parts and, and could do them all. So I've just become very flexible because of the trajectory in my career, I think. Okay, well, let's talk about comics then. Dan, what was it like moving from writing comics to working on games? Um, <clears throat> fundamentally, I think, apart from the really, really blindingly obvious differences, <laughs> the, 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 fundamentally, it was the same sort of process. I don't think of myself as being a different writer when I'm writing a novel to writing a comic to writing a game or, or anything else. Oh, it, is, it is simply using my basic skill set in specific ways to achieve particular results. Mm -hmm. And with the games, particularly at the beginning, the, 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 my only area of doubt was my lack of familiarity about what I, was I was supposed to be doing. But actually, comics, generally speaking, require a concision of language because you, have, you can't cut, literally cover the word with, page with words. Um, so you, you learn to have a sort of uh, a way of compressing that, which is often very useful, particularly when you're at the sort of mobile end of things, where, you, mm. where, where if you've got a verbal content at all, it's going to be comparatively small. Mm. And, and actually that then pays dividends on a big game, a AAA game, where concision is another valuable asset <laughs> for the very same reason. One of the, and it was, so one of the things that I found was, was I felt entirely equipped as a writer to write games because quite apart from the fundamental differences that a game is not a fluid set, linear, locked, narrative. Apart from that, big difference, <laughs> everything else was, was simply employing the sort of world building skills or character building skills or, or story development skills that I used in a comic and was, like a comic, had a very strong um, visual component that was, help, was supporting the telling of that story. Mm. There are things that I would do writing a comic that I would never do writing a novel and there are things that I would attempt to do in a novel that I would never do in a comic simply because they, they are very, very different in terms of the way they, they work. But actually a comic, uh, comics leaning towards the visual storytelling obviously uh, relate closely to games and television and cinema so that, so that you, are, you are essentially you've got an additional handrail of, of what people can see. Mm. Um, it's a, uh, I will champion comics for a minute in as much as uh, <laughs> movies and, well, actually, games fall into this category, but movies and television are, of course, a passive form where you sit back and let it wash over you and, and the, the meaning is delivered to you and that's wonderful. And reading a novel is a very active process because you are literally attacking the language to extract meaning from it. Comics, cleverly, <laughs> even though they are, you know, ghettoised and shunned as being the, the, the thing that you read if you're not clever enough to do anything else, uh, in fact, combine both of those things because you've got the, the passive reading experience of the image, but you've also got the active reading experience of the, of the words. So you could make a very strong case, I'm not going to, but you could make a very strong case that comic storytelling is the most sophisticated form of storytelling <laughs> in the world. <laughs> you wouldn't want to say that. And in the, in the purpose of this, you could actually say you could group 
games in with that because mm. again you've got a both an active and passive thing that the, the, the viewer or reader or player is doing uh, engaging with with the medium in, in, in two different ways mm. or multiple diff multiple ways uh, and I found that a particularly appealing thing and I felt that I was as a comic writer I was quite well equipped for trying to find ways of doing that when it came to games and it was what I what I found really interesting was the number of surprising obstacles there were for that that were not about the physical limitations or the technical limitations of the game but more about the technical limitations of the gaming industry mindset hmm. as, <laughs> uh, uh, in terms of, it, I, I wonder if it's due to the fact that, that because games are non-linear, non-set stories, everyone who works regularly with games are, 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 are very conscious of the fact that what they're doing should be open to interpretation and manipulation and, and everything like that. The, 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 giving, the, giving the player volition, uh, even superficially, or, 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 or um, uh, giving the illusion of being able to alter where the story is going. Mm. Um, and that is obviously very different from every other, other form of storytelling we're talking about. And, but it, it seems to me that, that, that they're hyper aware also of the potential range of target audience. The, the, there is not a player, there is not an illusory player, there are multiple different types of player, and sometimes it seems to me that we ended up in, on almost every game project I've worked on, in long and ultimately fruitless conversations about how to deploy story, because someone somewhere was too worried about a particular type of player who would not like that type of storytelling. Mm. And obviously, when you're making a movie, or a comic, or a book, you, you are trying to tailor it for your target market. So you're taking those things into account. You know, it's not like you're just, oh, they'll either read it or they won't. It's much more nuanced than that. But with a game, it seems to me that it's somehow, sometimes it's actually sort of um, slightly handicapped by that worry that there will be some people who will play the game in a totally immersive way, for instance, and will want to know every last bit of lore and read every last diary fragment they can find in every drawer that they ever open yeah. <laughs> and completely envelop themselves in that. And there are other people who just want to play it for two minutes for the fun of it every 10 days and never intend to finish. And to them, it's just like sampling. Oh, I'm an alien. No, I'm not again anymore. You know, it's that, it's that kind of jumping in and out. Had no overall care about the, 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 the story. And some people who are defiantly anti-story, that is to say that they, they don't like cutscenes, they don't like dialogue boxes, they're not going to read that. Fuck off with the other thing you're trying to show me. All I want is a gun because I want to shoot that. And indeed, when I introduce the MP, carefully introduce the NPC that's got the really important piece of information that they're going to need for the next bit of the story, they will try out their new flamethrower on them. Yeah. Because yeah. that's... And, and, and that's fine because because that's, that's no less, more or less a valid uh, player of the game than, any, than the, the, the sort of the, the, the immersive one. But, but trying, to trying to structure the way you deliver story in those circumstances to please everyone, I think, is a kind of a fool's errand. Mm. I think, I think if, I th and, and that has often been the case, is that, is, is that you, you get hamstrung with, with, can we put a cutscene in there? No, you can't, because there's some people who don't like them. And that, and that kind of mentality, is, is, it's, it's an over-awareness of the fluidity of a game. Mm. Okay. Do you guys agree that games are trying to cater for everyone? I think I think I think you're being wasted <laughs> <laughs> on on projects that are on on yeah. I think yeah, it's different kinds of games. I think. Is it AAA? I, I think. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I hate AAA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Down, yeah. They they're all terrible. <laughs> no, I think um, I think it just it just depends. I think um, I think games. Being a relatively new medium, uh, have a certain rigid continuity of uh, conventions mm -hmm. that are being kept around for no really good reason, yeah. apart from, oh yeah, we've done it like that before, and that's what people will 
expect and I used to. I think like I mean I want my I want the next Mario Kart to still have drifting in it, you know. But mm. I, I I don't I don't think that that projects going forward when they're being like designed from the ground up need to be like oh yeah so you can shoot any it's like it's like I'd, I'd rather have a game that has like a a tailored good experience that is also short so <laughs> I can play it um, but uh, but but like I like if we've got a hypothetical game box here I feel like at the moment I'd on, on, on the average game box, it's like, you can kill any character at any point and it'll be all right. <laughs> and you can, you can walk any, in any direction and, and that, that's okay. And there's a big field and you can go in north, south, east or west or you up, upwards. The there's a digging mechanic in it. It's like, if you have that amount of, if you give that player the amount of freedom, that's like, that's empowering to an extent. But, um, but, but it's no difference from just, Putting them in the middle of a train station and being like, "Okay, go, go, experience like you experience, find a story out of this." You know, mm. you can't. You, I think a level of curation needs to be made, mm. and I think um, as writers and designers kind of get pushed together, and as we selectively breed them, <laughs> we will eventually be able to create some kind of super being <laughs> that that will. That will that will uh, develop games with, with narrative and 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 design, kind of hand in hand, you know, and and it and and we, and we won't have, uh, very good writers being, <laughs> being locked away in 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 in. I don't know where I'm going. Someone just. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, your games are specifically for a target audience who like to read. Is that right? Um, so far. So yes. far. So, yeah, both of our games so far have been very text based. So, actually, in some ways, um, our writers have had the luxury of being able to write prose and being able to write, and the army came over the hill, um, as opposed to having to spend millions on constructing this, this stuff in a, in a cutscene. You don't have to make 90 orcs. Right, come <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> so um, talking about how Dan thinks that games are too busy trying to please everyone, and that might restrict the way you can tell stories. Yeah. Do you feel like your games differ in that you are more targeted? Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, it's something that we constantly have to take into account, really. And as, as you said, like the designers and the writers have to basically be the same person. When the writing is the game, um, you know, you're creating your mechanics out of the writing and you, you literally can't separate one from the other. Um, but I mean, part of um, the problem that you described of um, having to account for every possible scenario is part, it's kind of what games are about, really, and we should kind of celebrate that. Um, and I think writing for games is basically exactly about that, as being of kind of um, trying to allow the player um, the freedom to have a bit of agency in the story. Um, but there's there's going to be constantly this this, um, this this fighting between um, the authorship of what the writer wants the story to be about and what the player wants to do. And the, the, the way the game plays and the way the story is told, those things are always going to be in conflict. So um, it's about finding new ways, new, new game mechanics uh, that, that allow the best of both, I think, mm. really. Should I ask how everyone feels about Bioware changing the ending of Mass Effect 3 in response to the players? How do you feel about that? 
writers yeah. being made to tell that change. Yeah, you could, you could ask that. <laughs> <laughs> Should I ask you, William? I could give a funny answer. <laughs> I've not played the game. <laughs> what does everyone else I've think? not played the game. Either. <laughs> well, that's fine, then nobody's played it. <laughs> Let's go back to comics. Because I, can, I, I can speak to the point about players. Oh, yes, yeah. you can, definitely. Um, I think, especially the AAA scene, there's far too much reliance on play testing, and it's got worse and worse and worse. And and also hand-holding of players, like the obsession with a player. I, I, heaven forbid they they don't know what they're doing for five seconds, or don't know <laughs> where they're going, or maybe get lost. And we must have aggressive hinting at every point. Like if they've just stopped to look at the view, suddenly their character will be hinting about where they've got to go next or how they solve this puzzle. And from a gamer point of view, I find it really irritating because it doesn't give the the story room to breathe. And and I think story is very difficult to play test. And yet often in the AAA space. Play, um, story gets place tested really early on and it's like it hasn't been able to sort of breathe from the writers and you're getting kind of feedback from players and, and, and you know who don't really necessarily know what, what you're doing and what you want to do with the overall story or they're just reacting to a part of it or you know they're, mm. and they're being sort of asked continual questions about the story and do they understand this and and it it's, it makes the, what the writers do in the creative process really, really restricting. And you do get a lot of story by committee in the games industry. You do, the writers do get told what to do by layers and layers of people um, who all have more power than they do. <laughs> and then you're also getting being told what to do by, by your audience as well, which in, in some cases there, there is value in that, but in other cases it just makes your job, which is really restricting, Restricted anyway, even more because you're, you're very beholden to your audience. Um, before you, you know, and the, and the audience is sort of create uh, curating the experience, and that can work for some games. But when you're trying to sort of create a, um, you know, a very specific story and a very specific vision, I think it really it kind of gets in the way a lot. Hmm. Not a problem you have in comics. You know, showing people one panel out of the comic and saying, like, what do you think of this? Yeah, well, yes, yes. I don't think you'd review a comic on that, <laughs> that basis. Um, I, I, I think, um, I think that, that, that over-concern over that you're talking about there is absolutely correct, is that, is that, that, that over-worry that, that people are going to miss things. Mm. Given, given that, in, particularly in AAA games, there's so much effort, so much money and effort and technical expertise poured into making the situation, uh, the, 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 the game experience as realistic, in inverted commas, as it possibly can be, mm. that, it, that that is the benchmark, the, the, the hyper-hyper levels of realism that can be attained. Uh, yet the story isn't. The telling of the story, not the story itself, the story itself isn't realistic. That is to say that in, in, you know, if, if you were encountering that experience, having that experience for yourself, you might miss a vital clue and have to go back and look for it again. You might need to spend five minutes working out which way you're facing. You might need to do all those sorts of things. So why is the realism of the player's experience as a participant in a story mm. not matching the realism of the actual environment that they are, they are playing in. And that, that, was, that was, to me, a great frustration. I was thinking, well, if you're the sort of person who wants to play this game for five minutes and have fun and shoot his friend because that's funny <laughs> and, and not pay any attention to the story, then let's not worry about communicate, trying to find a novel way of communicating the story to them because that doesn't matter anymore. Mm. And the people who want to be immersed in the story and want to open every last drawer and box and find every last scrap of paper with a clue on it, uh, and then create that. Then it's all there for them, mm. um, and, and not to try that sort of over compromise yeah. of trying to make it fit all, all sizes. Make make a make a strong story led game for the people who want a strong story led game, 
But if it's a good game, people will probably want to dip into it anyway. I, horrified, and one of the most horrifying facts that I discovered when I started writing games on a regular basis was how many games go un, unfinished by the players. Oh, yeah. That, that, <laughs> I, I, just, I thought, if that was true of publishing and comics, mm. We'd stop. <laughs> We'd simply stop. You know, there's no point getting past page 12 of Aquaman because they're not going to read the rest of it. And then why would, you, why would you carry on writing something where you thought, well, there's no point trying to build any kind of story structure or arc or, or, or exciting resolution to this story because people only want to read the first three pages where the big fight happens. Mm. So, and it, that seemed to me to be a very peculiar thing, which I, I had to adjust to. Yeah, that's why developers spend so much of their attention on the beginning of the game. Right? Really I think, I think uh, in relation to both, both of those comments, I think, I think the, one of the main problems is games now, specifically the larger ones, are and like the 50, 50 pound like Shadow of, like I've played, I've played Shadow of Mordor, but it's like, I think to complete it, it's like 30 plus hours or yes. something. Yeah, well Alien Isolation is yeah, 20 it's, plus. It's, it's like, I think I, I've definitely not made a game that's longer than two mm. at the most, and and so so that would that would one be my response to like the percentage of people like who who leave things unfinished. I think broadly as as a medium, we're focusing very. We've got a, we've got a lot of a lot of values placed on how many hours a game is and like how how long something is, and 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 I think. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't see the. Well, I don't have as much free time mm. anymore, and I think, I think like when I was younger, maybe I would have had different expectations for a game, mm. but um, I think now I, I certainly, I certainly like things that are shorter. And on the on the point of like um, uh, the the design of stories being too handholdy, and and I, I, I think that's broadly for me. I, I disagree because I think broadly it's about about the notion of accessibility. I used to think that Portal was the best game. Yeah, probably the best. I used to I used to think Portal was absolutely amazing until I sat my friend down to play it who hadn't who hadn't played many games before and he just couldn't he just couldn't play it because you've got to know WASD jumping, you've got to you've got to be able to um, look around with the mouse to a certain degree of accuracy. To even just, to even just be functional mm. in the game, and I think I think um, a lot of a lot of the things that I've made have had very very stripped back mechanics. Uh, the most they usually have in is just one one button for using whatever you're looking at, um, and I think that gets rid of so much of the. Uh, frustration of 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 having to not only set up a main character and explain their motivation and the first the first few steps of the hero's journey you know you, there's there's that but you've also got to teach the player how to how to how to jump and move around and run and, and all these like it, it, it handcuffs you to it handcuffs the story to the mechanics and I think if you take away for me taking away the mechanics takes away a lot of those limitations of the story okay. I want, to, I want to go back to what you said about um, kind of shorter narrative games as opposed to these bigger ones that people spend a lot of time in and that's seen as like a valuable thing for them. So we, um, at The Guardian, we did an interview with Xbox chief Phil Spencer. So this is one of the, the big guys up at Microsoft who made the Xbox. And he said that he thinks that narrative games can only really survive against these huge 
um, kind of service-based games. So ones where you buy one game a year and you spend all your time in it and you get updates and stuff like that. So like Destiny, I guess, and Overwatch and stuff. He thinks narrative games can only survive against those if we create like a Netflix of games. Mm -hmm. So that because of you know how much money it costs to make games. And which, things which, like which marvelous company could provide <laughs> such? <a service>? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Xbox chief Phil Spencer thinks we need a, a Netflix of games in order for narrative games to survive. Um, so th this kind of division of games into these two kinds, and you'd only be able to get story-based games. They'd only be viable financially for people to make if there was this kind of subscription service for them. What do you think, Rihanna? You look like you completely disagree. Well, I mean, the Telltale is doing just fine. Like, <laughs> there, there are plenty of stu uh, studios just doing just fine mm. working on story-based games. Um, I mean, I don't think that necessarily Netflix of games is a bad idea, but... I don't think narrative, those, you know, the Telltale is trying to compete with Destiny. And I, don't, I think it's trying to appeal to a different section of players um, and a, a different audience that kind of want different things. Mm. So I, I think, you know, a, a place where you can get lots of games, you know, that, that, that's fine. I mean, they're already kind of, you know, through Steam or, or um, you know, PlayStation shops or whatever Microsoft has at the moment <laughs> um, is, yeah, yes. that, that's fine and that, you know, it's useful and that, that's cool and everything. But, yeah, there are so many different kinds of players that want different experiences. I don't think it has to be, or narrative of games are only going to survive against uh, service-based games. And they're not trying to compete for mm. those players anyway. Yeah. So, and I think they're doing just fine. Okay. William, you released one of your games for free. I've released multiple You've games. You've released multiple games for free. I've why why did you do that? I did it uh, to, to massively undercut all other indies who have to charge for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've already made my money and I can, and I can brutally consume their. their no, so uh, uh, I did it because I think. Um, which, which one? Dr. Do, you, so do you think that people are reluctant to pay money for short narrative games? No. Is that why you did it? Um, no, I didn't. No, I think, um, I think plenty of people have made very successful narrative games and the nice thing about being part of a small studio is the amount you need to sell to to turn a profit is just vastly vastly reduced mm. so like even if you're appealing to a niche you know you can still make a lot of money mm. through that so i don't think it's a i don't think it's a point of um of people not wanting to pay money for something i think i think for for me specifically in that in that scenario, it was a case of the game the game Dr. Langeskov, the Tiger and the Terribly Cursed Emerald of Whirlwind Heist was <laughs> a game that relied a lot on surprise mm. and it relied upon one kind of specific conceit. Spoiler um, oh, you, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you 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 um you start the all the marketing for the game and the promotion for the game leads you to believe as a player that you're about to play a heist game. Um, uh, and, and when you get in, you find yourself backstage in some kind of theater type building with a stage manager uh, worryingly telling you that someone's already playing the heist game and that everybody who helps run the heist game has left and he needs you to help. Right? But, but the thing is, if, you, if, you're, if, I, if I sold you a heist game for $5 or whatever the price point would be, um, and you then went in and realized it was, oh, this isn't a heist game. This isn't one of those, this is one of those walking simulators. <laughs> uh, they, like, you'd, I think you'd be justifiably mm. pissed off. Um, Steam refunds. Oh, fuck 
next. <laughs> stupid, stupid idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, presumably, Joe, presumably you also disagree, having built an entire studio out of narrative games. Yeah, and in a kind of premium business model as well. Mm. Um, I, guess, I guess I also see there's like two fundamental problems um, with creating a Netflix for games that um, primarily games are still sort of feature and technology driven. So whether it's a feature in terms of the game mechanics, like the, the sequel to this next game has this new new gun or this new new way of interacting with it or, or whatever, or whether it's the, the hardware, um, it doesn't really matter. We, it's still it's a little bit frustrating for writers and content creators that they can't just create new content. They can't just tell new stories. Mm. They have to they have to add them to um, new features. And of course, there are exceptions to that, like Telltale doing a great job. Um, but even they, I feel like, I feel like even they, they've, they've had a really good run of their current sort of, I hate to call it formula, but it's, it's, it's at least a format in the same way as movies have a format mm. already that's kind of hard set. Um, but I feel like even though like, players are already starting to get weary of that format, so I would expect to see Telltale to kind of shift and try and introduce new mechanics soon. Um, so that's, that's one problem with the Netflix model, that um, you know, movies have a standard format, so you know exactly what you're going to get as um, a consumer of that, that kind of thing. Um, whereas for a Netflix of games, you sort of, I, I can't see it working with quite the immediacy because you have to be able to download the game and boot it up and install it and whatever you need to do. And it's, you can't just click a button and be in it mm. already. And that's really, I think that's fundamentally what makes Netflix work really well is the immediacy. So it sort of makes me feel a little bit sad about, um, what was it called, OnLive? That oh, that never yeah. really went anywhere because I would have loved to have, have that kind of accessibility to just be able to boot up a game really quickly. Um, um, the other problem, I think, is um, that I've noticed that the more you pay for a game, the more patience you're willing to have to kind of get over the initial hump of learning all the controls and, you know, the accessibility the in general. So, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and we've definitely noticed that when people get our games for free as, or, or, you know, as part of a bundle or something, um, that they're... Often you see there's a huge discrepancy. If you look at Steam Spy, for example, there's a huge discrepancy between the number of owners of a game and the number of players. Like sometimes it's 50% or something ridiculous. And there have been statistics about how many people have games that they literally haven't played at all in their, mm. in their library. And um, so I think as soon as you make games for free, that, that could be a problem as well, potentially. Do you want to come back? <laughs> yeah, I'd be interested to know what you think about that. I really disagree with you. That's, that's okay. I threw, I threw Bloodborne out of the window after two, five <laughs> hours. After five hours of playing it, and it's like I don't care if I paid fifty pounds mm -hmm. for that. I'll get, I'll, I'll wrap it up. I'll dust the dirt off it, and I'll bring it back. And I think, I think broadly with, with, with Steam re refunds, there's just no, there's no patience for anything anymore. Mm. And. Um, and I'd also disagree about games being features based. Okay. And I'd also disagree. <laughs> I'd also disagree about um, Telltale. I, I feel like I feel like I've, it's weird as they've had more time with that medium and format. I feel like they've not they've just not got any any better at it. And I feel like mm. their earlier stuff was still definitely their best work. Mm. Um, I I I agree with OnLive. I think mm. I think um, I think I think. Uh, 
I think, oh God, games are so big. Mm. But I mean, size-wise, I'm, I'm still living in, in the middle of Yorkshire and downloading like a 50 gigabyte game literally takes a day and a half <laughs> of uninterrupted internet use. Like I've not been able to play like a bunch of games because just just my the the place that I happen to live in doesn't have that. Mm. I didn't get the right coin toss for the for mm. the like internet speed. Yeah, it's easy um, enough for Xbox chief uh, yeah. to say that we should. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder though whether the idea of, of the, the the hypothetical idea of a Netflix for games particularly would support. Uh, narrative games and would support the work of the writers on narrative games mm. because one of the things, technical problems aside about, I, I agree with you completely, one of the, the appealing things about Netflix is immediate and, and technically speaking we can't do that with games at the moment. But when you consider that the reason that games, AAA games for instance, are, are the price they are and the length they are, the sheer size they are, it's because of perceived value for money. Mm. They've got to be that kind of price because they were very expensive to produce, so they better be 30 hours long because otherwise you're not getting your money's worth. Look at the width of this, you know, it's, that's, the, that's the mentality. And, and that, is, that runs counter to, to the way, uh, for instance, television or movies work, is, is that the, 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 the length of those products are usually determined by what the story is. Mm. Uh, and and w again, using co comics as an analogy, if you're working on a, a comics or indeed a television show, you might do it in incremental parts. You might do it as the first series or the first story arc. You're not proposing to deliver your entire plan of your meta story in one go. You're going to give them a bit of it. And if they like that, then you're going to give them another bit of that. And that's, of course, why Netflix is great. That's why the, mm -hmm. the box set binge watching thing is happening. Because television is overtaking as being a, a, a given it sh technically shorter format, actually a series of television can tell a story more like a novel than a movie can these days. Mm. So, so the idea that we could, we could start building narrative games where you get, here's season one of that game. Right, which is kind of what Telltale does. Exactly, yeah. and, I think, and I think that idea where, where actually that gives the writers an opportunity not to try and strain at the leash to imagine what the, 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 the player's going to need in 30 hours or a year of playing, but actually to develop that and actually be to be responsive to what the, the, those players are, the feedback they're getting those players. In comics, that's certainly what happens. Mm. We, you know, I'll write a story arc in the thing for six issues. I might have planned what the next couple of story arcs are, but I might alter that given what the feedback I'm getting about what they liked about the previous story arc and think, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, they really liked that bit when I did that, so let's pursue that and forget the thing I was going to put that to one side and actually grow the comic organically based on readers' responses to see what they, they, they are enjoying and what they hate. If you suddenly do a storyline they hate, you go, right, don't do any more of that. We had 20 issues of that plan, don't do any more of that. So, so again, with a game which is even more user responsive, that you can, you can, because one, one of the big, the other big things I've noticed is that you, you, you build the big punchline to a 30 hour game and, and players will guess it in the first 15 minutes of playing. And you go, <laughs> well, that's many, many millions of dollars down the drain, yeah. really, isn't it? Because they've, they've guessed where it's going. But actually, if you can finesse that and you can curate the game organically in response to what the players are doing and you can do it season by season, then Netflix of games would be a, probably a very smart idea. Would you worry about entitlement of players, a sense of entitlement? Because that's a, that's a worry in the games industry. Do you have that with comics? Do you feel like readers feel entitled to there dictate is a, what they Yes, but the, I, I, again, I wonder if that's because the games industry is a younger industry. Mm. That is true of everything. There is the entitlement of the film goer. Who, that, that's, that's not my 
version of that film. I don't like, why are you remaking that? It's the same as television in, absolutely in, in, uh, in comics. The, you know, the, 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 the furore recently with certain things that Marvel had done with Captain America. It's just like, that is not my Captain America. How dare you do that? Well, Marvel dare do that because it happens to belong to them and therefore they might as well try doing that. And actually, if it causes a big fuss, that's quite an interesting thing to do. And, 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 and also, you know, they, they, therefore, will give rise to things like fan service where you, you know, sort of, you're dropping a, a, a hint of a character into a movie just because it will please fans to see that that connection is there. Mm. Why not? You're, you, you, the point of what we're doing is to entertain an audience. So if that entertains an audience, then why is that a bad thing? Why is listening to your audience and discovering what they really, really liked and what they really, really didn't like? Not to the point where, where you're simply going, OK, give me the ideas, I'll, I'll, I'll make that the game. <laughs> but, but to be responsive to that is, is surely... It's, it's something that everybody else in, 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 in comics or in films do. Why would you not do it in games? And so I, I think there is, there is a fine line. There is a point where, where the, the needs of the audience is going to outweigh the needs of Kirk or whatever. The thing, I don't know. The, the, the needs of the audience <laughs> is going to outweigh the needs of what the game designer wants to try and do, and that, and that you should stick to, what you, stick to your guns. But certainly you need to be, need to be aware of it. Hmm. Okay. I, think I, I think the thing I found prob probably most frustrating about, about playing, playing like, um, season-based games was that um, if I ever came up against a choice, and maybe this is because like I'm, I do this as a job, and so I've got more of a mind, my mind's more focused on it. Whenever I'm presented with a choice of, oh, either this character survives or this character survives, I know that there's a budget for those recording lines, and I know that they, <laughs> I know that okay, at this point it's splitting, and they've got to have at least this amount of lines for each character, and at some point they're going to have to converge this, otherwise they're going to be like doubling the voice budget for the entire game. And so I think I think, and and also in terms of listening to your audience, it's like which parts mm -hmm. of the audience, and the more the more agency you give these players, the more the different, the more they'll split off and the wider they'll go. And so I think, um, to a degree, like like um, I I it it feels it feels immense. I I feel like that just the the. <coughs> Players, players are a big problem. If we could make games without, <laughs> without the players, <laughs> we'd, just, we'd just be good. <laughs> all right, well, we've got about 10 minutes left, so I've just got um, a couple of kind of broader questions for all of you to think about. I want to know where you think that innovation is currently in game storytelling. Rihanna, have you thought much about this after hosting the jury? It, I, I think it is actually in the indie space. Mm. I think um, the way that the indie games have flourished in the, the, sort of the last five to eight years has been incredible. Um, the fact that you're being used to tell personal stories like that, that Dragon Cancer, which mm. also won a BAFTA. Um, yeah, that, that, real, that really feels where, where the innovation is coming from. And there's, I mean, I, I would like to see the sort of middle ground flourish a bit more because sort of when I was a journalist, that was a, that was a kind of a flourishing area. And then that sort of died off. And we've had interesting things coming up from, from the indie space. Um, whether you know less reliant on kind of publishers or shareholders, and they can be um, you know truly creative and you know experimental. And then with the with the kind of AAA games, they're they're placing a lot of focus on um, performance capture and using kind of mocap and using great actors and, and great technology. Um, and you know they're doing some really good stuff there. And I'd like to see more of the middle ground flourishing that's taking inspiration from, mm. from kind of both ends. Mm. And you're starting to see that a lot. I mean, Overlord was a sort of very middle ground game in terms, certainly in terms of budget. It probably sneaked up into AAA because it was, the, the, the press enjoyed it and it was fairly a kind of original in its, its gameplay and, and world. 
Um, but there's not so much of the middle ground anymore, and I think that... that and then you, could, you could say that Telltale was certainly occupied the middle ground for a while. They probably sneaked up in, into AAA, but, um, yeah, they, they were sort of taking the best of, of both worlds. And I think that there's, we'll probably see more studios that are kind of growing into that middle ground that just don't have the budgets for the big AAA, but do have some of the, the, the flexibility and freedom to, to be kind of more experimental with mechanics and creativity and, and having something to say in mm. the game. Okay, awesome. Dan, I mean, I know you don't you don't play many games, so is there is there any sense that you get of, of how maybe how games have changed or the interesting things they're doing right now? Uh, I, I think I think the really exciting the thing that keeps getting me to come back and work on game projects is the potential mm. that, that, that that it is it is it is so unexplored compared to, to to other things. There are so many things that people haven't even thought of trying yet, and I do think that I agree with Rihanna completely that the the, 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 the sort of the blending the technical developments of the AAA with the inspired ideas of, of the indie games to, to, to find sort of new and different things to do and new and different ways, not just of storytelling, but of gameplay, of all sorts of different things, to, to, to give that experience. There is sort of, there should be sort of no limit, really. And, and, and I, I think when I started out, I, I, I felt that the games industry was almost like Hollywood in the 1920s. And then somebody just come running in the door going, we've invented sound! What can we do with that? And, and, and the, the, those kind of innovations are still happening. And I, potentiality is there. That's what makes it very, very exciting indeed. Mm. And the very fact that it, that it is also, you, you're, you're producing material for a very large and very hungry and very eager audience, <laughs> which is, is not, for instance, true of comics anymore. The comic, yeah. comic, comic industry itself is shrinking, even though comic properties are dominating popular culture at the moment. That doesn't, doesn't mean to say the comics industry is, is a, a hugely thriving place. But games is, mm. and therefore it's probably a great time to Sort of like television is doing with Netflix and original content for downloadable stuff. It's the time to invest in trying to see what could be done mm. and what audiences like uh, before before it becomes passe to do that. I, I think that is, is that sort of golden age feeling that, that, that needs to be exploited. Okay. Joe, how do you feel about innovation currently in storytelling in games? Yeah, I mean, I can feel completely the same as uh, both of you. I'm very excited about the indie space um, in particular. I think that kind of mid-tier of indies, I think they're... I think they're definitely flourishing right now, partly because the indie space is so competitive right now that you really have to push up your kind of production value a bit more in order to be competitive. And so you see games of the kind of the, the level of Firewatch that are made by studios of like five to 10 people. I'm, I'm really excited about those kinds of games. I think on a kind of a, a more fine-grained level, I think the the innovations in the way that the, the design of the mechanics interact with the story is, is, is where the innovation's going to happen and where it already is happening. If you look at games like Firewatch and the Stanley Parable, actually, they, they use a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> they use a lot of audio, which layers really well over the top of traditional mechanics. Mm. And that I feel like that's a discovery. I don't know when it was discovered or when people started doing it. What <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't, so <laughs> obviously. But I, I feel like that was a brilliant discovery because it allows the player to do what they've always been doing, which is running down corridors and looking at the environment. But it also allows them to use another part of their brain that mm. wasn't really active at the time, which is 
just being able to listen to a story and be told about something, and making really good use out of that, as the Stanley Parable did, which is, which is, <laughs> is, is what's, what was really important yeah. in, in, in that example. But I think there are going to be other kind of discoveries of the way that you can use audio, or the way you can use the controls, or just some fine-grained detail, the way the mechanic works, that will allow story to creep in and mm. kind of um, um, <laughs> be consumed in parallel with whatever mechanics are going on. Okay, William, innovation and storytelling. Can I get a different question? Do you have any other? <laughs> yeah, I have some other questions. <laughs> okay, thank you. My final question, what do you think is missing from game stories? What kinds of things are game stories failing to do? What stories are we failing to tell in games? If you want, we can go back to the reality. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. Uh, uh, I think, I think, um, Games, the games industry broadly obviously has a problem with, with pretty much everybody being a white guy. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry for not helping that. <laughs> um, I, so I think, I, think, I think broadly stories told by more diverse voices, I think that's, that's, that's got to be the headline of like what 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 games stories are missing mm. at the moment uh in terms of in terms of like um what i'm interested in pursuing i think um i think i'm going to keep going down rolling back mechanics so that like you said players can have like more brain space to kind of consume the consume your work as a as a more intellectual piece and they can they can use more of their analytics, they can analyze it more rather than rather than it being uh, an exercise in skill or mm. or reaction time. Okay, uh, Rihanna, do you want to go next? Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with with William about diversity, and I think it's both on screen and and well, uh, developers as well. Yes, um, and. Just have games having something more to say for themselves as well. I think we're we're especially in the AAA space, we're very reliant on, on violent gameplay. And don't get me wrong, I, I really like a bit of violent gameplay. But <laughs> Clearly, I mean, we, we too kind of, um, <laughs> I, I kind of, I mean, kind of as a, as a gamer myself, but uh, I, I think we kind of need to just broaden that out and, and try and find some kind of new mechanics for interacting with these wonderful worlds we're creating rather than just shooting people in the face in them. Um, and I would like to see that... Um, yeah, it's just, just more ways of interacting with the world that, that aren't necessarily violent. Mm. Um, and that's just because I, I want to see what the industry can do. I still, yeah, I, I appreciate a good first-person shooter, but they are, we are telling the same kind of stories in them. And I think with that, that very violent gameplay, you do get limited <laughs> with the kind of stories you can tell against that backdrop. And yeah. I think we're, we're kind of reaching saturation point with, the, with those kind of worlds and stories. So there needs to be a lot more innovation there. And, and kind of more personal games. I love seeing games, as I mentioned, like that, that dragon cancer that are telling kind of personal stories, that are telling human stories. And that, that shows you how kind of diversity of where the stories are coming from. Um, you know, I, I want to see boldness with, with the kind of type of characters we're, we're um, showing and the voices. You, know, you could see the, the, the male game developers of the industry, of which there are many getting older, having kids, and then they started telling father stories. Oh, yeah. We've got a lot of father <laughs> stories coming along now. The dadification of games. Yeah, and, and there, there are very few 
um, kind of mother stories, and I would like to see some of those, and particularly with, with female protagonists, more female antagonists, more diversity in, in kind of age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, background ability. It's, it's more than just, um, when we talk about diversity, we often just talk about gender, mm. and it's, it's actually so much bigger than that, and there's so many different <coughs> things we can draw from. Um, you know, all the, all the things I mentioned. So there, there is a huge amount we can do, and it really does feel like we just sort of scratched the surface. But, you know, it, it's, it's really promising, and the way th people are thinking and, and bringing things to the table is, is shows that we're kind of moving in the right mm. direction, I think. So your company is trying to prioritise those kinds of things at the moment, isn't it? So what do you think is yeah. the kind of next thing that's missing that you want to aim for? I feel like, as, as you said, Rihanna, I just feel there's so much missing. There's so much that we can draw on from other media, from everywhere, that games just haven't done. I mean, we haven't done, like, a Downton Abbey, the video game. Oh, I <laughs> wish like, there was one. <laughs> like, there's just so much stuff that isn't done. Yeah. Um, and, like, I'm, but I'm also interested in, like, quite subtle things that haven't been done. Like, I don't know, like... On the one hand, like Indiana Jones has sort of been done to death in, in that it's like Tomb Raider and um, um, Uncharted. Uncharted. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, the way the film treatment is done, that it's kind of, it's got, you know, he's an, he's an archaeologist, he's an academic, he's just like, there's, there's more to it than the action in Indiana Jones, even though there are a lot of action scenes. And I'm actually quite interested in seeing a bit more kind of just mainstream adventure storytelling um, that just doesn't rely on the action, basically. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to see mainstream stuff. It doesn't all have to be super kind of um, uh, abstract or, or crazy off-the-wall stuff. Like, I'd, I'd be happy to see some, some just mainstream solid stuff with excellent storytelling. Okay, and then finally then to finish, because I'm sorry we've overrun by a few minutes. Dan, from a kind of outsider's perspective, looking at the games industry and how we're telling stories, what are we missing? <laughs> I don't honestly think you, you, me personally. you personally, <laughs> you as an industry, which of course I'm not part of. No, I, I don't think that there is anything missing at all. I just think there is, there, is, uh, there is a huge amount more to be added to the things that are already being done extremely well. Mm. There are ways of developing that, sophisticating that, adding to that, doing things that haven't been done yet because the capacity is there. And I think, I think the, sort of the, the, the games that, when, when you talk about games, people tend to think of the first-person shooter, the big budget, violent-based things. That is what a game is to so many people, particularly people who don't play games, that's mm. what it is. Mm. And that's, that is simply like looking at the comics industry and saying, well, that's about superheroes, isn't it? And yes, of course it is, because there is an extremely huge mainstream superhero market, but comics are so much, where, where are the, um, the game equivalents of the band Desine and, and, and manga and, and all the other different forms of comic book that appear for different age groups, for instance? As well, and, and so diversity, diversity in storytelling, diversity in, in playing experience, diversity in, in, in the makers of the games, diversity in terms of the characters of the games, all those sorts of things, I think, are, are there to be done. And I, I wonder whether it is, um, despite the fact that I think there is huge amounts of, potentially huge amounts of experimentation that can be done in the games industry, whether it is, it is a desperate attempt to hold on to the things that, that so far have worked really, really well. So we must do more of those things without, without branching out. It's a sort of, it's sort of a, a security thing of, of, uh, of, of let's, do, let's do another one of those mm. because the last one worked. Let's do another one like that because the last one worked. And that is, that is what sort of 
clearly works for particular parts of audience uh, markets in, in in other things. As I say, I'm using comics. I keep using comics as an example. But that's okay. Decent, that's decent, why you're decent, here. Decent <laughs> um, And I, I, I just think that that kind of that sort of breaking out in either a small or large way from the norm and just trying something else is 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 a good thing to do. Okay, awesome. Well, a good place to finish then. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. I'm sorry that we overran. And thank you to all my panelists. Could you give them a round of applause? <laughs>